So it's been a couple weeks since our last class where Joe was talking through the history, history of um, biblical sexuality and what it looks like in the culture and in our church and how the idea of sexuality, it connects with our identity right now in culture. There's this understanding that who we are and our sexuality, it, it's so interconnected with our identity that people put this understanding on it that's, that it's, it affects everything in our culture. It affects how a person acts, it affects who they are fundamentally. Sexuality is essentially inseparable from who a person thinks they are. And right now, as Christians, we're faced with this challenge of interacting with sexuality in the culture. What do we do? How do we bring this topic up? What do we talk about when people have distorted views, people have different thoughts and understandings of their own life and how they view things? Would somebody mind closing the door back there? Thanks. So what the culture tells us is true is disconnected from what we think and what we know, and it can be a, a difficult challenge for us to, to know how to interact in that sense. So, by a show of hands, this is what I'm going to start off here with. Has anybody sought out to renew their passport in the last year, or the past couple of years? Yeah? I, a few years ago, uh, felt this disconnect that we have with culture. I, I sought to renew my Canadian passport um, a few years ago when I was registering to vote absentee. And as I was going through the process, they had the regular questions on there of, of things you had to fill out. What's your name, your date of birth, um, what's your, your color of your hair, and where you're living. And one of the questions that caught me confused was, um, what is your gender? But it wasn't just, it didn't just give two options. It had male, female, and X. It said X, another gender. And so I read that and I was a little, I was confused because the document, your passport, is supposed to exist to help like, TSA know if you're the actual person who is going through on this flight. Yet, they gave you a choice of another gender, which I thought that wasn't really helpful in official capacity. And then I, I looked at the American one um, to renew, and it had the same thing. And so this it seems to be a cultural thing where it's coming through that your gender is not something that's defined by male or female, it can be whatever option you want. And I think that makes sense culturally because people want, the government wants people to feel welcome. They want them to feel open and able to identify themselves however they want to identify themselves. And on the, the State Department, they even had on their website uh, an explanation for why, because people would obviously want to know why this is an option. And they said, they're committed to promoting the freedom, dignity, and equality of all people including LGBTQI individuals. So that's why they allowed that third gender on there. So we can see in this that identity and sexuality, they go hand in hand in our culture. And today, our focus is going to be on how God thinks about sexuality. We've been learning about the cultural perspectives, as I was mentioning, Joe was talking about a while ago, and over the years, how the church has responded to that and how the culture has kind of shifted historically in different ways that uh, gender has been explained and, and shown and displayed. But what I want to focus on today is God's perspective. We're going to spend some time looking at scripture and digging into what God thinks about sexuality. Next week, I'm going to build off this foundation. Uh, I'm not going to talk specifically about sex today. That's going to be work around that because that's next week's topic. Um, but I'm going to be building the foundation today so that we can understand what 
sexuality looks like in the Bible and then use that as a springboard for next week. Um, so biblical sexuality is key to understanding God's purpose for sex. And human, humanity, really, we need to be thinking about sexuality first to get that point. So today, um, I was thinking about, as I mentioned, that passport example. Um, there's been this disconnect between our biological sex and our gender identity and how we really identify ourselves. People have different genders they talk through, all those different lists. And gender, ultimately, is the way we live out our biological sex. It's made up of these characteristic displays of the way you want yourself to be perceived. And the way you choose to display yourself as a man or the way you choose to display yourself as a woman is what our gender is. So it's a culturally defined and understood way of what is acceptable and what's not acceptable to display your masculinity or your femininity. And these things are all culturally determined. What is seen as masculine in some cultures is probably not gonna be seen as masculine in others. And the same thing with feminine. Some cultures have different ways of determining what a, uh, a woman should do to be feminine than another. And ultimately, they, that's not a bad thing. Cultures are different, and they have different displays and different ways that they can show that. So as we work through this, we can see that cultures, they differentiate themselves in this. And I wanna ask a question. So in our culture, in the Western world, what are some ways that we dif differentiate? How do we show uh, our masculinity or how do we show our femininity? The way we dress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what, what were you? Uh, well, along the same lines, but I think you could also say hairstyles or just... Yeah. Speech? In what way? Mm-hmm. That's good. Anything else? What they're interested in? Yeah. You want to flesh that out a little? Um, they're more interested in sports and violent-ish things. Yeah. Violent things go with mail. That's, that's a good one. Yeah. And I think right now we, we've got these different understandings and we've gone through these are really helpful ways to think through how we in, in the West and America can think about gender. But the issue we're facing right now is that our culture has equated gender, which is really that cultural manifestation of our male or femaleness, and biological sex. Those things have been equated. So gender, which is socially constructed, People see it that way, but then they attribute our biological sex as being socially constructed as well. There's been this disconnect there where since our identity is self-determined, they're believing, like I can determine my gender identity, it's not connected with who I, who I am biologically, then that means my sex can also be uh, determined however I want to identify it. Our sex at birth is ultimately not fundamental to who we are, the, the culture is arguing that it's inconsequential. Being born male or female is simply a hindrance to discovering who you really are. And the culture doesn't think that a person should be, um, they should be defined by who they were when they were born, by their sex at birth. 
And as we hear this, a, a question should arise in our mind. What does the Bible say about this? Do any passages come to mind specifically regarding sex, like sex, biological sex from the Bible? Genesis 2? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of where, where I'm going to take a look. So Genesis 1, 26 to, 26 to 27, uh, it's contrary to that cultural assertion that you're really defined your identity by who you're sexually attracted to. Uh, Genesis 1 kind of pushes back against that. Um, and we see that every person's identity is actually made off the Imago Dei, which is the image of God. That's who we are. And the passage reads, as I have it here, uh, didn't change it. There we go. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So reading this, does anything stand out to you guys as you hear that, as you read about it? I think it's helpful to think through this passage in, in specifically because God created us in his image and that means something. There are these, uh, these relational, relational aspects to the image of God and, and different components that people debate about what it really means and what the status is of humanity. Those things aren't really what I'm going to be talking about right now. Those are kind of a secondary issue um, to this discussion. What I want us to focus on is that the outpouring of this image of God is what Olivia was just mentioning, that there are two sexes. There's male and female. The outpouring of the image of God is that there are two types of things you can be. You can either be a man or you can be a woman. God didn't create humanity as a sex, sexless creature to reflect his image. He created us man and woman. And from the beginning, God intended for people to be man or woman. This was before the fall. You have a question? Yeah, so that's, I'm, I'm going to address a little bit of that in a little bit, um, but it is, a, it is a helpful topic thing to discuss because it does say God is spirit, the Bible. Um, so spirit can't really have a sex in that way. But throughout the Bible, there are masculine pronouns used with, when talking with, about God. Um, that's, I'll, I'll address a little bit about that in a minute. Um, but at, right now, I think 
the, the helpful thing to, to think through is that, that binary. There are two choices. You're either man or you are a woman. And out of that, man and woman are a complementary pair. They're similar in their being, yet they're distinct in who they are. They're, they're not the same thing. The biological sex you were, you were born with, that they were given, God had a purpose behind that. And for you too, the biological sex you were born with, God had a purpose for that. There was a reason he gave you a male body or a female body. And he uses that to place a call on your life. There's a purpose. There's a reason you're that, that way. One writer puts it this way. It's your most basic vocation, your most fundamental job in life, to joyfully embrace and faithfully embody your sexuality, whether male or female, for the good of others. And this is another reason why it's so important to treat our LGBTQ individual friends with love. Every human is God's image bearer, and every human deserves love and deserves respect in that way because they are made in the image of God. There's always going to be a temptation to ignore God's call in our lives, in any, every way of our life, every part. And sexuality is no different. But we're to live out this sexuality and to rejoice in the sexuality that God has given you. The sex that God has given you is a good thing. Regardless of your own desires, you can rejoice in that. A person isn't defined by who they sexually desire. They're first defined by being the image of God. And from that, we can see that there is a biological sex that they're given. So we see that the Bible clearly states we're, we're either male or female. But what does it say about gender? This idea that's uh, culturally created. What do, what do we get from that? And how do we understand what the Bible informs and how does it inform the way we express our gender? So as we were talking about that earlier, it does come from culture, those, uh, ex the way we express our gender. But there, there is some type of filter that the Bible gives us and it, it instructs and informs the way we can think about that. We shouldn't seek to display our gender in a way that blurs the lines between what our biological sex is and what another one is. That can be the way we can look at the culture and, and help that as a filter. The male-female binary is an important, it's an important aspect of who we are. It's an important aspect of humanity. And, and trying to blur that, to distort that, it, it does a disservice to the image of God. And this is where we can apply a, a couple passages, I think, specifically, like Deuteronomy 22.5 and 1 Corinthians uh, 11.4-6, which I have up here. It says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. And then 1 Corinthians, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. The framework that we're given here is that men shouldn't seek to desire, or shouldn't seek to dress like women. And likewise, women shouldn't seek to dress like men. What this means practically is going to change from culture to culture. Because from culture to culture, that's where we see those gender expressions come out. The culture is going to define what a man should dress like, and the culture is going to define what a woman should dress like. But in that, 
we, we as Christians can, can look at the way the culture says to express your gender and filter that through the Bible. Is what I'm doing an active expression of my masculinity or am I trying to subvert that? Am I trying to blur that line and make it seem like, oh, I don't know if this person is a man or a woman and create conflict and confusion for people? That subversion is what we should be avoiding and what we should seek to, to have clarity in. Neither our biological sex nor our gender is malleable. And we can't seek to make it fit what we want it to be and what we think of ourselves. It's defined by God and it's ultimately purposed by God for him. 1 Corinthians 6.13 says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Our gender expression should not seek to blur that gender distinction, those biological distinctions. So we have a better grasp now of how God thinks about this, and that makes the rest of our lives easy, right? <laughs> Simply, you're just going to put this information in your mind, and you're like, all right, I'll just do this. It's really easy. But we all know that's not really how life works. Sin is present. Sin is active and it's working in each one of us trying to confuse us and, and sow discourse in our lives. And we might have this understanding of what God thinks about sexuality, but we still have another piece to look at. And that's what our next discussion point is going to be. It's going to be thinking about sin. So we, we were talking about Genesis 1 a minute ago, but we see a few chapters later where sin enters the world. In Genesis 3, Eve and Adam ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And their choice led to all creation falling under the condemnation of sin. And all creation faces those consequences. We're all children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, because of sin. We're all under that weight. And because we're all naturally born sinners, from birth, all of our moralities have been tainted and corrupted by sin. All of our actions, our thoughts, our desires, the things we hope for, the things we want, those have been corrupted and changed because of original sin. And that has had a profound impact on our identity. And that's why Jesus can say in Mark 7, 21, that out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, adultery, and all other evil things. All of these things, he says, come from within, and they defile a person. We know humanity is marred by original sin. But people are, people are often going to ignore this fact when we approach sexuality. They, they disregard that fact, and they place blame on situations, or they place blame, blame on people's upbringing for why they struggle with sexuality. And I think our, our environment certainly does play a role, and our upbringing does. But it's not what's causing us to sin, ultimately. That's the original sin that we all have. That's what's pushing us towards sin. The root of the issue is original sin. As Christopher Yuan puts it, the things from our past are secondary catalysts, not the primary source. Parents don't shoulder the blame for their children's sexual attractions or their difficulties with their gender. Sin has the blame. Sin distorts reality. It tells us to believe things that aren't true. Sin makes us hope in things that aren't true. It, it affects the way we think. It alters our natural state and deceives our heart. Original sin is why people struggle with same-sex attraction. 
Original sin is why people struggle with their gender identity. It's why they think they're born in the wrong bodies. And if we don't see the, the connection between original sin and sexuality, we're going to completely miss how we can care for the vast majority of people. Our solutions are going to be simply tell somebody, stop doing that. Just fix your thoughts. Dress different. Those aren't ways that we're going to actually help people. Those aren't ways that people are going to see real heart change. These solutions don't get to the, the heart, the root of the issue. They're merely outward changes that lack the necessary heart change. They're just a facade. And these, these solutions, these answers we try to give people are unloving and legalistic. Instead, what we need to do to combat these ideas is to put to death what is earthly in us. And the way, the only way we can do that is by being born again, by turning to Christ and seeing a renewal in our hearts. And this is the same for every indwelling sin we have. Every sin in our lives needs to be brought to Christ. We must be born again to overcome sexual sin. And once we're born again, our identity is no longer in that sexual sin, in whatever sin. Our identity is in Christ. Our identity and our hope is placed in him. It's connected with who we are in Jesus. And that good news of the gospel is able to restore every single person's brokenness, every person's hurt. The Bible doesn't distinguish sexuality from any other type of sin in our brokenness. They are all met at the cross of Christ. And this idea should really, it should free us up for when we can interact with people who are struggling with this. We can know the gospel can enter any conversation, can enter any difficulty people are facing with sexuality. We don't have to experience the same battle, the same struggle as the person. We can just point them to Christ, point them to the gospel, point them to hope. We don't have to be fearful about knowing the right answer because the, the answer we have is Jesus. He's the solution to sin. Jesus spent time on earth. He took on the form of humanity. So I think we should spend some time looking at Jesus' sexuality to learn more about who he is and how his life intersects with that concept of biblical sexuality, which is where I'm bringing up Jesus in this sense of God's pronouns. So we'll start by thinking through Jesus' life on earth. Um, there, are, there are a few things here I have, had written down that I think are helpful. Jesus was born with a Y chromosome. He, his resurrected body is male. He was born from a virgin woman. He was never married. He lived a celibate life. These are all different things that we see from his sexuality on, on earth. And he became fully human by emptying himself and taking on the form of a servant. And it says in Hebrews, he was like us in every respect during his life. So in every way we are tempted, Jesus was also tempted. And that ultimately means he was biologically sexed. As a, as a person on earth, Jesus was a man. His body had hormones. He grew. He had a beard, maybe. <laughs> All of these different things are part of humanity and being a male. And th th I think that's a, it's a helpful thing to think through and consider in your struggles, in your life. What does that mean that Jesus was a man? Or for women, what does it mean that Jesus was born by Mary? He had to come through the womb. That's a, an aspect of, 
of maleness and femaleness that, that we can see in Jesus' humanity and in his life. And we see that this is not just a temporary sexuality. Jesus' resurrection proves that, it, uh, that in a biologically sexed way, throughout the resurrection, we are going to be the same. The sex you have right now is going to continue into eternity. Jesus is not non-binary in his resurrected life. His perfect and glorified body is male. And we see in Luke 24, 39, he said to the disciples, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And in 1 Timothy 2, 5, Paul writes, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. And we see it summed up in Colossians 2.9. For in him, all the deity of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is referred to with male pronouns. His glorified body is male. And that means something for us. We read in 1 Corinthians 15 that the glory of the heavenly is different than the earthly. So, it is it, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable and what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man in heaven. Our same bodies that die when we are raised again will have the same biological sex as we do right now. The difference is that our resurrected bodies will be improved. They'll be glorified and spiritualized. Therefore, the sex that we're born with the sex that we have right now is what we're going to have in eternity. And some of us find that it's difficult to accept the body you're given. That's an understandable thing. We find it difficult to resist temptation and, and we submit to the lie that we're in the wrong body. Maybe your desires don't align with what God has given you as your sexed body. But I want you to know that God has a purpose behind making you a man or making you a woman. As challenging as it may feel at some times to accept, we're not without hope in our brokenness. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead and his eternally glorified body provides us with the hope that we have. Our lives will be able to escape this brokenness eventually. There is healing. The pains and hurts that we experience every day because of the corruption of original sin, those will eventually go away. All of our tears will be wiped away. We will willingly, throughout our whole life, make mistakes. We are going to choose sin. But that is not forever. The way forward isn't simply to change our outward behavior. The way forward is the gospel. There's forgiveness and healing at the cross, and we need our hearts to be renewed through Christ. We need the, the, the grace of God to meet us. We need to be made new so that we can live out the sexuality that God had for us as he designed. And I'm going to close here with a few practical ways to live out this sexuality. First, uh, I think we should be embody, embodying the wholeness of sexuality by bringing our baggage to God. We each have baggage. We each have difficulties and sins. Don't cling to those things. Give them to God. Bring them to him at the cross. Cast your burdens onto him. Don't get lost in your fear. Don't get lost in your despair. There is hope that's available for every person. Your shame, your pain will be met with love 
It will be met with grace when you bring it to God. You were bought with a price so you can glorify God with your body. And the way you treat your body, it demonstrates to the world what you're putting your faith in, what you're putting your trust in. So use your body in a way to demonstrate the trust and faith that you have in God. And secondly, you can offer hope and healing to others. As Joe mentioned a couple weeks ago, when if somebody comes up to you and they reveal to you a, a deep sin struggle, maybe with same-sex attraction, or that they're struggling with their gender identity, the first thing to do is affirm them in it in, by saying thank you. That's the affirming. Thank you for revealing this to me, talking to me, and sharing this with me. But the next thing you need to do is point them to Christ. Point them to the truth that they can have hope and restoration through that, not in changing their behavior or simply uh, covering it up. What they need to do is have a heart change. They need renewal and restoration. Reconciliation with God is the most important thing in any person's life, even if they're not aware. Offering hope is life-changing. So I've used today's class to lay groundwork for next discussion, or next week's discussion about the physical act of sex and how God wants us to think about it. Um, this information today is vital for understanding and, and having that building block that we're going to work on next week. And this is the framework that I outlined in the first week that we're going to finally get to, that biblical sexuality is chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. Thanks for coming. Hope you guys are all back next week. <laughs>